Our scripture reading this morning, or this evening, we said that a couple times already, we're so used to mornings. Our scripture reading this evening is from uh, John chapter 19. I'm going to be reading from uh, verses 16 to 42. You can follow uh, in your copy of God's word or on the screens or in uh, the bulletin. This is God's word. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place, to the place called the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths 
with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. Father, speak to us through your word. May your spirit enliven us to understand the significance of this amazing event that we have just read about. Father, may you open our eyes to not just this truth, this, this thing that happened in time and space and history, but help us to see the significance for each one of our lives and each one of our eternities. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As I come to the Passion Week each year, uh, like a lot of pastors that are out there, uh, I wonder what is it about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that can be said that either I haven't said before or hasn't been said a million times before. So every time you come to the cross in that open grave, you think, Lord, what do you have me to see here that is new, that is fresh? And then what do you want me to then communicate to your people about the significance of these events, not just, again, in history, but in our individual lives? Well, the Lord showed me this year something uh, that I'd never really thought of before, and it came in a really unique way. Many of you know that uh, I'm a reader, and so I like to read, um, and generally I have about five or six books going at once. I've heard about people out there that read only one book at a time and that are disciplined to start that and finish it before they pick up the next book. I've never been that disciplined, so I've always got five or six books that are going at once. And I will tell you, this past week, I was reading bits of each one of those books. And every uh, three out of the five of those books all brought up one word. And that was the word vulnerability. Vulnerability. And I thought, Lord, you're, you're getting my attention with this. What do you mean by, by bringing this word on my plate as I read all of these different books? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about especially Good Friday is all about vulnerability. It's about vulnerability. When you think about it, the whole story of the incarnation is a story about vulnerability. That word incarnation means uh, in the flesh. And we think of John 1:14 that says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so it is this belief that God in heaven has taken on skin and has moved into the neighborhood. It really is the story of God becoming vulnerable. Now, I don't know if you've thought about what that word vulnerability means, but it means the capability of being wounded or the state of being susceptible to wounds. It means exposure in all sorts of different ways. And whether we like it or not, to be human is to be vulnerable. Each and every one of us, we live with this perpetual risk around us all the time of being wounded or of being harmed. And that's true in all sorts of ways. It's true spiritually, it's true physically, it's true emotionally. And if this pandemic, this COVID-19 thing has taught us anything, it's been an intrusive and massive reminder to all of us about how, how vulnerable we are to all sorts of things that life could throw our way. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to think about that. We don't like to feel vulnerable. And so what we do is we throw up all sorts of defense mechanisms that we can muster so we don't feel vulnerable. And some of those things are good and some of those things are bad. Probably when you drove here, you put on a seatbelt. Why? Because when you're in a car, you are vulnerable. When you play sports or when you go out on a bike ride, you put a helmet on, you do that because we are vulnerable. We put security systems on our houses because we are vulnerable people. And even sometimes we refuse to let people into our lives relationally for fear that they could wound us. And so we put up all sorts of defenses against vulnerability. But at the end of the day, we can never fully avoid it. To be human is to be vulnerable. In fact, one author, Madeline Langle, wrote that when we were children, we used to think that when we grow up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is actually to accept vulnerability because to be alive is to be vulnerable. That's who we are. But then we look to God and we obviously recognize that God is not like us. God is different. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is in control of all things. God is one who spoke the world into creation. He was the one who allowed the flood waters to cover the entire earth. He was the one who parted the Red Sea so that his people could walk across on dry land. He was the God in power who brought down the walls of Jericho. In Jesus, he calmed the storm in the boat. He fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. He healed people of their diseases. And so what we recognize is that no arm is as strong as the arm of God. But in the incarnation, something happens. In the incarnation, God becomes one of us. And he takes on vulnerability. He takes it on. Think of Jesus as a baby. He had to rely on Mary and Joseph for his own survival. As a man, he needed food. He needed shelter. He needed sleep in order to survive. But the vulnerability of Jesus is most on display in the final week of his life. Because think about in this story all the things that are done to Jesus during this final week. On Thursday, he's arrested in the garden. They seize him forcibly. And so the hands that had created the universe were now bound in chains. Later that evening, he was led from one mock trial to another one, each one a bigger sham and a bigger instance of injustice. On Friday, the soldiers stripped him of his clothes. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They spit at him. They struck him. And then he was led away to be crucified, his hands wounded as they were nailed to a cross. Jesus was exposed He was vulnerable. He was subject to taunts. He was subject to mocking voices. He's forced to drink sour wine. And finally, at the end, he breathes his very last breath. The God of the universe has been wounded and he has been killed. He's taken off of the cross and he's buried in a borrowed grave. 
See, friends, sometimes I think we just become numb to the very fact that the God of the universe took on vulnerability so that we, you and I, could be made whole. One of my favorite uh, authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, wanted to convey this very thing when he envisioned God as a lion, and the name of that lion uh, was Aslan. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, his, his famous children's story, uh, Aslan makes himself vulnerable to the forces of evil so that he can redeem one of the children, a young trader whose name was Edmund. And so at one point in the book, he turns himself over to the forces of evil while two of those children, two little girls, watch this scene play out in front of them. Lewis writes this, the fool, she, the witch, cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. Lucy and Susan, they held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. The hags made a dart at him and sheeked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them, they rolled the huge lion over on his back, and they tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave, though, had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh, then they began to drag him towards the stone table. See, those two children that were looking on at this scene were shocked. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. They couldn't believe the image of a powerful lion allowing himself to be made vulnerable. Well, friends, how much more so our Savior, who made himself vulnerable so that you and I could be made whole? How could Jesus do this? How could he endure such vulnerability and wounding? Well, he could do it only because he trusted in God, his Father, and the Father's plan of redemption. How, why would Jesus do this? Not only just how, but why would Jesus do this? Why would he become vulnerable? Why would he endure death? Well, I think Kate Bowler says it best when she says, right in the place of Jesus's deepest weakness, we see the beautiful, terrible cross show us something. It shows us pure and perfect love. Just like what we read earlier in the kid's story, It wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was love. Now, of course, this isn't the end of the story. We will see on Easter that this divine vulnerability becomes the means for a divine victory. But for now, we weep in the night because we know that joy comes in the morning. Amen.